Section 3 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Melitzia. Music and the dance developed side by side. Music is rhythm plus tone. The dance, rhythm plus gesture. In savage life, they are well-nigh inseparable. The dance among civilized peoples is merely a diversion, a form of amusement. Among savages, it is much more rarely so. Nearly all ceremonies, whether of a joyful, sorrowful, or religious character, were accompanied by appropriate dances. Many of these dances were of a very elementary character, consisting merely of certain postures, swaying of the body, or leaping into the air. Some dances were imitated from the motions of certain animals, even as some of the primitive songs were imitative of animal cries. Of such nature is the kangaroo dance of the Aborigines of Australia. The men who indulge in the dance imitate the postures and leaps of the kangaroo, and also imitate with their voices the sounds made by that animal. Meanwhile the women sing the following simple tune over and over again, and furnish a rhythmical accompaniment by knocking two pieces of wood together. Similarly, the North American Indians have eagle dances, dog dances, etc., while the natives of Kamchatka have a bear dance in which, says Engel, they cleverly imitate not only the attitude and tricks of the bear, but also its voice. There were also war dances, love dances, funeral dances, and various ceremonial dances. In a sense, all primitive music may be considered as dance music. All primitive songs were accompanied by gestures or dances, and naturally there was no dance without its accompanying music. The head-hunting Dayaks of Borneo have a dance in which the gestures indicate the cutting off of heads. The North American Indians have a scalp dance celebrating the victorious exploits of a war party. The Maoris of New Zealand have a war dance in which all thrust out their tongues at once a gesture which may indicate contempt of the enemy. One of the most curious and primitive dances is the Corroboree dance of the natives of Australia. It is thus described by Karl Engel. Twenty or more men paint their naked dark bodies to represent skeletons, which they accomplish by drawing white lines across the body with pipe clay to correspond with the ribs, and broader ones on the arms, legs and the head. Thus prepared, they perform the corroboree dance at night before a fire. The spectators, placed at some distance from them, see only the white skeletons, which vanish and reappear whenever the dancers turn around. The wild and ghastly action of the skeletons is accompanied by vocal effusions and some rhythmical noise which a number of hidden bystanders produce by beating their shields in regular time. Here is the melody of one of these corroboree dances. This melody is from New South Wales, and has been noted with slight variations by Wilkes, Field, and Freysenay. The version of Field is given.
but it is perhaps among the American Indians of all savage peoples that the dance assumes its greatest importance. The very term dance often means a ceremony covering several days, the whole consisting of many individual dances, recitations and songs, and forming a ritual of quasi-religious or pantheistic character. Their ceremonies are usually appeals to the gods for rain, abundant crops, luck in hunting, or good fortune in war. Thus there is the great rain dance of the Junis, the sun dance of the Cheyennes, and the snake dance of the Hopis. The snake dance is an elaborate ceremony of several days' duration, during which live rattlesnakes are on occasion carried in the hands and even held between the teeth, while a dignified and stamping sort of dance goes forward. It is primarily an invocation to the gods for rain. Two melodies used in the snake dance are here given, as noted by Benjamin Ives Gilman. First melody. Second melody. primitive dances are accompanied by hand clapping, stamping of the feet, the beating of stones, the knocking of two sticks of wood together, or something of this nature, to keep the time regular and to accentuate the rhythm. Among the Andamanese islanders, thigh slapping alternates with hand clapping, and among some tribes the snapping of the fingers is used. From snapping the fingers to rattling a handful of pebbles was an easy and natural step. This rattling of pebbles in the hand constituted a kind of rude castanets. These pebbles were soon put into a seashell or a gourd, and thus the first rattles came into existence. Rattles were made by putting pebbles into gourds or other dried hollow fruits, into tortoise shells or seashells, and even into human skulls, as is the case in New Guinea. In the snake dance mentioned above, gourd rattles are used, imitating the sound of the rattlesnake when angry. The rattle is supposed to be the remote ancestor of the bell. In the place of two sticks, two bones were frequently beaten one upon the other, or struck together while being held between the fingers of one hand. Long mussel shells were also used as clappers. The beating of slabs or plates of stone constituted a rude gong. Finally, it was discovered that by stretching the skin of an animal tightly over the end of a hollow log, and striking it energetically, a sharper and more resonant and penetrating noise could be produced than in any other way. Thus the first drums were made.
The rudest form of drum on record is evidently that in use among the Andamanese islanders. It is called the Pukuta Yemunga, and consists of a shield-shaped piece of wood which is placed with the narrow end in the ground, and struck with the foot. The convex side of it follows the shape of the tree from which it has been cut. When in use, the convex side of the pukuta is uppermost. It is evidently a kind of sounding board or foot drum. The drum, roughly speaking, is the oldest musical instrument. It is of great interest to us, inasmuch as it still holds a place of honour in the modern orchestra. It is the king of the group of percussion instruments whose object it is not to produce a tone but an accent. No tribe of savages has been discovered but what is possessed of a drum of some sort. The most usual form of construction of the primitive drum has been that of a section of tree trunk, hollowed out and covered with skin at each end. Certain trees, such as the breadfruit tree or the bamboo, render this peculiarly feasible. But drums have been found made from gourds, coconuts, calabashes, and many melon-like fruits. Primitive drums range in size from very small hand drums, which can be held in one hand and struck with the other, up to those whose heads are several feet in diameter and require the use of a good stout club as a drumstick. The ancient Mexicans possessed a drum which gave forth two distinct tones of definite pitch. It is thus described by Carl Engel in his work on musical instruments. They, the Mexicans, generally made it of a single block of very hard wood, somewhat oblong square in shape, which they hollowed, leaving at each end a solid piece about three or four inches in thickness, and at its upper side a kind of soundboard about a quarter of an inch in thickness. In this soundboard, if it may be called so, they made three incisions, namely two running parallel some distance lengthwise of the drum, and a third running across from one of these to the other just in the centre. By this means they obtained two vibrating tongues of wood which, when beaten with a stick, produced sounds as clearly defined as those of our kettle drums. In some of these wooden drums the two tongues on being struck at the same time produced a third, in others a fifth, in others a sixth, and in some even an octave. The difference in pitch was obtained by making the two tongues of a different thickness, and naturally the greater the difference in thickness, the larger was the interval produced. A curious instance of drums which give forth a sound of a definite pitch is the bamboo drums, still to be found in some of the islands of the Pacific. These drums were first described in the account of Captain James Cook's third voyage to the Pacific Ocean. The whole passage is of exceeding interest, giving as it does a picture of purely primitive musical development, untouched and uninfluenced by any civilised suggestion. The date, as far as I have been able to ascertain, was May 18th, 1777, and the place, Hapace, in the Tonga Island group. The account is as follows. A chorus of eighteen men seated themselves before us in the centre of the circle composed of numerous spectators, the area of which was to be the scene of the exhibitions. Four or five of this band had large pieces of bamboo, from three to five or six feet long, each managed by one man 
who held it nearly in a vertical position, the upper end open, but the other end closed by one of the joints. With this closed end, the performers kept constantly striking the ground, though slowly, thus producing different notes according to the different lengths of the instruments, but all of them of the hollow or bass sort, to counteract which, a person kept striking quickly and with two sticks a piece of the same substance, split and laid along the ground, and by that means furnishing a tone as acute as those produced by the others were grave. The rest of the band, as well as those who performed upon the bamboos, sang a slow and soft air, which so much tempered the harsher notes of the above instruments, that no bystander, however accustomed to hear the most perfect and varied modulations of sweet sounds, could avoid confessing the vast power and pleasing effect of this harmony. Captain James King, who was with Captain Cook during his last voyage, also writes concerning these bamboo drums as follows. In their regular concerts, each man had a bamboo, which was of a different length and gave a different tone. These they beat against the ground, and each performer, assisted by the note given by this instrument, repeated the same note, accompanying it with words, by which means it was rendered sometimes short and sometimes long. In this manner they sang in chorus, and not only produced octaves to each other, according to their species of voice, but fell on concords such as were not disagreeable to the ear. The latter part of this quotation from Captain King raises the interesting question of the existence of harmony in primitive music. This question has been much discussed. Travellers have certainly brought back wonderful tales of part singing among primitive peoples. Unfortunately, most of these travellers have not possessed any very accurate musical knowledge, hence their statements cannot for the most part be regarded as of scientific value. Especially does this apply to statements concerning harmony or the harmonic intervals. The appreciation of a melody or tune is about as much as the man of average intelligence is capable of. But the determination of the relation of the notes of this tune to other sounds produced at the same time requires a more special and technical knowledge. At a first consideration of the subject, one is led, somewhat hastily, to conclude that when definite harmonic intervals occur in savage music, they are entirely the result of accident, and not of design. In his description of a dance native to the Bushmen of Australia, Elson says, The music to this odd performance is not in unison. The dancer sings one air, the spectators another, and the drum gives a species of ground bass to the whole. To have arranged these two airs, so that they, on being sung simultaneously, would have produced a concordant and musical result, would have required a degree of mental development of which the Bushman is not to be suspected. In this and many similar instances, we may safely assume that such harmonic intervals as may have been produced were purely the result of accident. There are, however, so many instances on record and of undoubted authenticity in which it is seen that certain savages have consciously striven to produce concords, both in their singing and in their rude instruments, that these cannot be disregarded in an impartial consideration of the question. Of great interest in this connection is the following song, which was obtained by G. Forster at the Tonga Islands about the year 1775.
it will be seen that this song ends with a chord of three tones, a triad in other words. It will also be seen that each of the tones in the triad, with the exception of E, has been sounded more than once in the preceding melody. In fact, with the exception of D, all the tones of the melody are constituent tones of the triad. After singing these tones in melodic sequence, or one after the other, it was surely a most natural procedure to sing them at the same time, so that they should sound together. Thus the triad was quite naturally produced. Drayton, who visited the Tonga Islands some seventy years after Forster, also mentions the fact of their ending some of their songs with a well-defined triad. But whereas the triad in the song noted by Forster is minor, that spoken of by Drayton is a major triad. In either case, the fact is sufficiently remarkable. In the narrative of the Wilkes Exploring Expedition, we find a song noted in which use is made of the harmonic intervals in the accompaniment of a melody. The song was obtained at the Tonga Islands about 1840. In its use of harmony, it is one degree in advance of the song collected by Forster, although not so interesting melodically. First, the bass note makes a fifth with the principal melodic note. Later, the third is added, making the complete major triad. It is also worth noting that these harmonic bass tones are in a slightly different rhythm from the melody and preserve an independent character as an accompaniment to the melody. Perhaps the most striking instance, however, of the conscious use by savages of concordant musical intervals is afforded by the following little song noted by the traveller Forster as having been sung by the original inhabitants of New Zealand. To have sung this melody in thirds, to have ended it in unison, and then to have gone back to the thirds again, was certainly a most remarkable feat for the savage mind to accomplish, and decidedly points to conscious intention rather than mere accident. While the knowledge and the development of the science of harmony is one of the fruits of European civilization, and as a science is well nigh confined to Europe exclusively, we still must admit that whereas primitive man had no knowledge of harmony, he had a feeling for it, and that his feeling led him, though somewhat blindly, to the attainment of certain fundamental harmonic intervals. These intervals he evidently valued and used consciously. It is certainly of interest to note that a germ or suggestion of harmony existed in the primitive mind, that this element, as well as the other elements of music, has a natural basis. End of section 3